The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, that's a weekly and a monthly letter. And also, I, uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling. Now, with regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. He does accept new subscribers during the first two weeks of each calendar quarter. So the first two weeks of January 2016, Chen will be accepting new subscribers, those who have put their name on the waiting list, and you need to go to J. Taylor, or excuse me, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to sign up for both my newsletter as well as to put your name on uh, Chen's waiting list. With regard to Chen, I should mention that posted at J. Taylor Media, an interview that I did with Chen last week is there. Chen talks about two of his top stock picks, both in the bio, uh, biomedical uh, biotech uh, environment, uh, a couple very exciting new breakthrough companies that I think are well worth paying attention to. So go to the podcast page at uh, mining at jtaylormedia.com to uh, to listen to that interview I did with Chen Lin last week. Do you want to thank each of you for listening to this show and uh, encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions the number four Taylor at gmail.com. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Dynacor Gold Mines, and we have a new sponsor today named Dynacert, Inc. Dynacert is a very interesting company. You'll be hearing more about them. I'll have the CEO on this company, on this show, uh, probably in the early part of January sometime. Uh, but this is a company that designs, engineers, manufactures, tests, distributes, and installs transportable hydrogen generator aftermarket products for uh, for various transportation markets, um, starting with the truck markets, it is uh, in the uh, commercial truck markets. It has had a very successful test uh, market 
uh, a very successful test uh, that went on through with uh, using some 200 Pepsi trucks in the Detroit market saved, uh, reduced the fuel consumption by between 10 and 20 percent and of equal importance in this day and age when people are so concerned about uh, emissions, it uh, vastly reduced the emissions uh, from existing technologies as well. So the carbon uh, emissions that are put out that, the, that everybody's so concerned about, especially those uh, concerned about global warming. Well, it is. Uh, you can make the point essentially that Dinosaur is actually more green than Tesla, and the reason is because it immediately reduces the emissions. Uh, and of course, Dinosaur is not tapping into the power grid uh, in any in any way to uh, uh, you know for its source of of fuel saving. So anyway, it's a very interesting story. Stock is selling at under ten cents. D Y A is a symbol. Uh, and you can buy it in the United States under the symbol DYFSF. I have added it to my newsletter. I should mention that 70% of the stock is held by insiders, families, and friends close to the company. Um, 182 million shares. I think it has a chance to be a huge winner. Certainly, uh, no slam dunk. It needs to raise capital. That's the biggest risk, I think, right now. But if it's able to raise capital, I think it has a chance to do exceedingly well. Well, the markets are rejoicing today. Um, we have this uh, seven, this rate hike, the first one in some seven years. It uh, is almost a certainty, according to what we hear tomorrow. It's to occur tomorrow at 2 o'clock. They will announce it. And the markets are rejoicing today. It seems that the Fed is going to raise rates because uh, the people seem to think that the Fed has a sort of an omniscient, uh, that it is omniscient, in fact, that, uh, you know, who needs God? I mean, we've got the Fed. Uh, they know that the economy's on the mend, so therefore we can just trust what the Fed says. And sure enough, the markets believe, hey, this is good news. The Fed is finally raising rates. Why? Well, because it knows with 100% certainty that the economy is strong and everything is getting better. Of course, I am highly skeptical that the economy is anywhere nearly as strong as the Fed propaganda would would lead us to believe. Uh, in fact, my inflation deflation watch is suggesting exactly the opposite is true. Well, I, I do personally applaud a rate rise because that will be a move back towards market levels, market forces, which the Fed has been working so hard to deny. But in so doing, the Fed has created massive bubbles. Uh, it created a uh, certainly a commodity bubble that uh, peaked in 2011. And then after that, uh, and continuing on with both debt and equity market bubbles, uh, the commodity market, of course, has deflated big time. Um, you know, if I look at my inflation deflation watch, we're looking at uh, items such as copper, oil, uh, the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and silver. And those items have declined by between 51 and 72% since 2011. So the commodity bubble has definitely popped. But the other two bubbles that I think are likely to pop uh, as the Fed starts to raise interest rates. And we have started to see the beginning of the credit bubble bursting, I, I would argue, with a rise in junk bond rates that are now reaching levels that, uh, you know, not since 2009, the, the, uh, the last major crisis. But now this emerging credit market crisis may, I think, spill over into the equity markets. And one of the reasons is because the biggest buyer of stocks over the last couple of years and in fact, Goldman Sachs is suggesting 2016 will be the same. We'll see nearly a half a trillion dollars worth of equity buying from the companies buying back their own stocks. Well, the problem is that this has been going on now for several years, but 
it's not like the companies are doing it from their cash flow. They're going out and borrowing money to a very great extent. And so what we're starting to see now is a weakening even of the strongest companies in America. Their balance sheets are becoming increasingly weak. And as the interest rates start to rise, it becomes even less economic or becomes very uneconomic to go out and start uh, start borrowing at higher costs to go out and, and buy your own stock. So, you know, there could be many reasons why the equity markets take a tumble in 2016, but this is one that I think is related directly to the uh, to what we're seeing now, the start, what I would argue is the start of the demise of the credit markets, starting with the junk bonds, the most risky of the debt markets. Um, so uh, while um, my IDW, it's telling me that we have a huge amount of pain ahead of us as we head into 2016, uh, my IDW, my inflation deflation watch, is just structurally looking so weak. It is actually plunge below both the three and five year moving average. So no matter what the Fed does tomorrow, it is expected to raise interest rates by a quarter of a point. I don't think it will do anything to move the needle with respect to my IDW. It is just structurally weak. The global economy is very weak because we've had all this malinvestment. We've had all these bubbles. The bubbles need to be popped in order uh, for us to ever see any kind of real economic growth again. And then only if the Fed and the policymakers will keep their mitts off of the markets and let them do what they need to do to efficiently allocate resources and to restore capitalism, because I think that's what we've, the Fed has been working very hard to do in the, to destroy capitalism by not allowing price discovery in the capital markets. Well, let's move on to today's show. I've uh, titled it On the Edge of the Fed's Planned Economic Chaos. Dan Oliver and Michael Oliver return. And following 2008-2009, it is clear that the Federal Reserve is, is certainly doing all it can, as I just suggested, to destroy capitalism. They do that by manipulating interest rates. The Fed disallows the pricing of capital that way uh, because the politicians and policymakers do not allow savers and investors to know what the true price of capital is. Capital is, uh, the lifeblood of capitalism, is being drained from the system. And by denying capital to the to be priced properly, it is really allowing a parasitic elite to become ever more wealthy, as the middle class is inexorably rele- relegated towards serfdom. How much longer can this carnage go on before a horrific deflationary depression or an inflationary explosion results? And what will all this mean for honest money, namely gold and silver? Well, we'll ask put some of those questions to Dan Oliver. Uh, and uh, before we get to Dan, actually, Michael Oliver will be joining me uh, to update us on what his latest momentum charts are telling him about the gold, equity, and bond markets. And maybe we'll coax a couple of other uh, market forecasts out of Michael as well. In fact, I'm, uh, my engineer is telling me we do need to go to break now. We need to take our first commercial break. And when we come back, I will be with Michael Oliver uh, to try to tease some of those answers from him. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Tuesdays, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for our special series on social selling. Learn how you can become the savvy leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next wave of business innovation. Social Selling with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again the most frequent guest on this show, Michael Oliver. And Michael, uh, I would encourage you to go to his website at Oliver MSA, Oliver M is in Mary, S is in Sam, A is in Albert.com, Oliver MSA to learn more about his work, and I suggest you do that. Uh, because I hold it in such high esteem, and of course that's one of the reasons, that is the reason that Michael is here with me more frequently than anyone else. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Great to be back. You know, the the world is expecting a rate hike tomorrow. I think it's, uh, I saw on CNBC, they're suggesting 95% certain, or at least uh, 95% of the economists there are suggesting that's, that we'll get one. It would be the first rate rise in some seven years or so. Now, normally a rate rise would be considered bad news for equities and, you know, somehow though it seems today the markets aren't paying much attention. In fact, they rather think that maybe there's good news now. The Fed knows in its omniscience, it knows that the economy is really strong, and if the Fed is raising rates, we can just trust it and go out and buy stocks like there's no tomorrow. But, of course, you don't look at these fundamental things so much and this you know hearsay and hoopla that you hear on. You're really looking at the structure and the momentum of markets. Can you help us set aside the verbal diarrhea, I would call it, from the Fed officials and other talking heads to help us understand the overall structure? What are you seeing in the equity markets? You know, I would like to mention that to my, to my listeners that on December 11th, you put out a very interesting piece. It was titled, A Chart to Nail to Your Trading Room Wall. And there you provided some ideas about what some of the breaking points might be uh, for the S&P going forward. Can you give us a sense of what, wh- wh- where do you see the S&P right now? Well, I, I see it as having transitioned into an early bear market. And uh, recall 2007, for example, uh, up, down, up, down, up, down, with no real direction. 
uh, it finally ended up uh, closing in the middle of the year's range, and then it was bombs away in, in 2008. That was a transitional year, and it consumed the entire year. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happened here? I mean, the same thing. S&P's down on the year about a half a percent. It's been up and down on the year, probably more down on the year than up, but still just a big sloppy range of action. Uh, very little liquidity, uh, but apparent distribution. Somebody doesn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and they stopped where I thought they should stop, which is 2130, and they just keep, yeah, and that crowned the year twice. And I, I, since then, we haven't fallen apart, so nobody sees an overt bear market yet. Mm-hmm. From a momentum perspective, I, I measure price action against certain means, averages, mm-hmm. uh, long-term averages, short-term, and so forth. Well, the emphasis is, of course, on long-term right now, and mm-hmm. I'm looking at the uh, three-year average, uh, 36-month, and 200-week averages. Not crossing the average itself, but the structures that are built when you plot price against those averages, you end up with an oscillator. Mm-hmm. The oscillator presents a bar chart picture just like a price chart, but it doesn't look like the price chart. Mm-hmm. And it gives you different information about where support and resistance. And we violated enough stuff this year and put ourselves in a position so that when we open next year, we will be blowing out other supports of great consequence on the momentum charts. Now, this is not just true with the S&P. It's true with the DAX index in Europe. It's true with the Eurostox 50 index, a blue chip index of Europe. It's true with the Nikkei 225, another developed market index. They're all in the same boat. They've all been wounded, and they're all waiting for next year. And when we open next year, they're not in a good position to have a good year. They're mm. in the starting gate position to go down. So mm. I think we're in transition for downside in stocks. Uh, I think yeah. an inverse of that's occurring in some other markets, uh, commodities in general, although they still have not quit going down. Some of them have not. A lot of them have. Uh, and so I think it's a big arm wrestling match that is basically going opposite directions to what you think you see on a price chart. Okay. I'd like to get to some of the commodities and uh, in particular the precious metals in a moment. But one other thing I'd like to ask you about, I noticed that uh, another technical analyst that I follow uh, pointed out yesterday's rally in the markets. There was more losers than winners. I think more stocks were down than up. Uh, and you pointed out, I, I think, this sort of narrowing of breadth. Uh, you know, the market is there's fewer and fewer stocks that are sort of leading the charge, and that is uh, sort of typical. I think you see that in, in near mm-hmm. uh, long-term bull markets. But you had a very interesting piece you put out on, on uh, d- discussing the internet stocks in particular. I think there's an ETF uh, that's uh, PNQI. I think is the symbol. It, it includes a, a the it includes stocks like Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Netflix. I guess those are the stocks that are in there. Those are the kings you know, right now. Yeah. Those are the kings. Are the yeah, leaders. I mean, they're they are really pulling the market, keeping it from from you know from tanking. I would argue. But right. what are you what are you seeing in uh, in your analysis of that uh, of that ETF, Michael? I think the ETF is topping out. Uh, it basically it topped for all intents and purposes from an investment point of view in uh, 2014, and it went into a range. Uh, the market persisted in going up. It didn't. It actually got hit very hard in early 2014, and it took it an entire year of recouping to finally, in the middle of this year, exceed the 2014 high. And, of course, that's when you had the big explosion at Google and Amazon and all of them almost on the same day. Mm-hmm. So we've made a, quote, new high in the PMQI, and, and these stocks are stellar, and they're heavily weighted in the NASDAQ 100. 
which of yeah. course gives the Nasdaq 100 the big edge. Uh, you know, they're not equally weighted to other stocks in the index. Uh, but it's that narrow now to where those four symbols and a few others, which constitute the bulk of the PNQI ETF as well, make the PNQI the focal point as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's easy to find the weak components of the market, say, see the market's weak. The key, I think, is to find the strong ones and, and nail the point where they turn down. Mm-hmm. When that happens, uh, that's when the market caves. And so I'm watching the PNQI. It's trading around 81 right now. Uh, there's some massive numbers underneath it next year. They're down in the 70s, low 70s. But mm-hmm. you've got to remember, that's about where the highs were during the 2014 period when it, when it peaked and went sideways and finally worked itself up another $10 uh, mm-hmm. into, the, into the 80s. If you drop back down to 72 and a half, uh, that looks to me like a major top completed uh, and a, a major decline ahead. So that's, that's down there a bit, but for a volatile ETF like that, it doesn't take a lot to get down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I am focused on that particular ETF. All right, all right. Good tip. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes on, the, on that uh, particular ETF. You know, some fundamental analysts are pointing out uh, the, the demise of junk bonds as a start of possible breakdown in the, in the financial markets. So today, however, I see that junk bonds are rallying along with stocks and everything else. What what is your outlook with uh, respect to junk bonds now? Are you, are you see? Uh, I think we talked about um, the high yield markets in in the past. Uh, are they they've broken through? On are you really well, definitively I, I, bearish now? MSA turned negative over several quarters ago, and it, uh-huh. but it was a slow start. In other words, the the downside in the uh, HYG and the JNK ETFs were was uh, arm wrestling type of downside. It wasn't yeah. precipitous. It didn't scare anybody. It's only uh-huh. recently that you're starting getting the downside volatility, and, and, of course, you get an update. It's going to be a big one. You know, it's, uh, that's the way it is. Uh, I don't see any reason from my perspective, uh, a momentum structural perspective, to assume that a bottom's been reached or that we're even near a bottom. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't mean it can't bottom uh, despite that, but I don't see the technicals that say, hey, you're near a bottom. Uh, if anything, I think we're in mid-stride. And I do think the contagion will roll over. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's one of the two that was put up there by central banks. They wanted you to buy high yield and in, invest, not save, and the public did it. Yeah. The public did quite well between 2011 and 14 on those type of uh, vehicles. Now suddenly the public's bleeding. Now they're not bleeding in their stocks yet, but they're certainly getting hurt in the high yield market. And it's not just oil-related. There's a lot of property-related ETFs and, uh, and, and, and symbols that are getting crushed as well. So uh, you can't blame the high-yield debt market just on the uh, whatever 12% or so of it that's energy-related. Uh, it's, it's a contagion beyond that. And, yes, I do think it will roll over into the equity markets. Oh. And, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, as I was saying in my introduction, there's some evidence now that, uh, that a lot of the stellar companies, the companies that, you know, that have the highest credit ratings are starting to have weaker balance sheets because they borrowed so much money to buy their own shares and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. So you have to wonder, you know, to what extent some, there might be a general weakening overall of the credit markets, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll have to certainly keep our eyes on that. Now, you mentioned oil. How does, how does oil? Oil has had a, a second good day today, so far, at least when I looked earlier today. The equity or the, uh, yeah, the, the oil stocks were up strongly, and oil also was, uh, was up a good bit today after yesterday. Um, where are we at in oil? Have we seen the bottom there yet, well, you think? Oil and oil stocks, I think you need to differentiate. First off, the, uh, it, it's clear that the oil stocks have gone down hard while the stock market went sideways. 
during 2015. So that was a function of a weak oil market. However, I argued in a recent report that you could also have the opposite, and I think it will occur. And that is where oil finally does make a low, and I'm not talking $20. I'm talking you know, either side of the low 30s, let's say, 32. Mm-hmm. I don't th- I, the recent low, just above 34, is, uh, I'm not particularly keen on it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not looking for 20 but I do think oil is trying to find a bottom, and I suspect it will find one in Q1 of this coming year, and not at some disastrous level. <clears throat> and that does help XLE, the energy sector ETF, and so forth on days like today. But when I look at the XLE, it does not look to me to be at all complete on the downside. And there's, it's an ETF that's trading 60 to the low 60s right now. Uh, my bet is you see it in the very low 50s before you might then be at a low. And I suspect that that low will occur simultaneous with the next sharp low in the S&P. In other words, it's not a function at this point all the way of of just what oil does that will cause XLE to move up or down, Mm -hmm. but what the broad market does. So, for instance, let's say oil does find a bottom, but doesn't explode. It it subtly moves up off of its low in a begrudging way, let's say. The key then is the S&P. If the S&P goes for a dive, I think that will put the damper on the XLE and drive it down, because what? They're stocks. You know, (laughs) they're a key part of the S&P, so the S&P will then become the negative driver for the XLE. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and during that process, though, I do think you'll find this situation develop, and it'll be a tell that the XLE won't go down as much as the S&P at that point mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. So it'll be time where the it'll be better to own energy stocks than the S&P starting from around that low, All that right. next major low. Yeah. Uh, and, okay. And, well, that's that's yeah. good. That we'll have to keep our eyes on that. And uh, one more thing before I let you go, we can't let you go without uh, at least a comment or two on gold. Um, when, when, Michael, we're going to see a bottom next gold. Year. These are numbers I'm looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. I still think the gold is bottoming. It's a gradual eking down process. The collapse occurred in 2013. Everything since then is another uh, 10% or so below that level, but it's taken us two and a half years to lose that 10%. So put that in perspective. Mm-hmm. Silver as well. Um, next year, if you ever see gold in the 1150 to 1170 zone, that is a massively positive zone to get into. It doesn't show up in a price chart is important, but from long-term momentum, it says you've won. It's turned. In the mm-hmm. case of silver, if I see a monthly price close uh, uh, just short of $15 in the upper 1490s, I think you can circle that monthly close and say, that's it, silver has bottomed. Now, right. you know, we've been there in the last month or so. So we're talking mm-hmm. about price levels that we've, we've seen during the past uh, 30-some-odd trading days, right. uh, especially on silver. So uh, those are the numbers I'd be watching as of 2016. All right, Michael. Well, it's uh, gold isn't that far away either. I mean, a hundred dollars from where it is now will get us into that range. So, (laughs) yeah, it it will. It really could. I mean, it's uh, of course it's the paper markets, and and you know, God only knows how much more paper is going to come at the physical markets. But that's another story for another day. Ultimately, as you point out. Markets do prevail. It's uh, just uh, the question is whether or not we can live long enough to see it. I guess, but I, I, I think we will. I, you and I, I aren't that old yet, uh, Michael. So uh, I with think some good Yellen has more to worry about than we do. Okay, <laughs> I think you're okay. right. I would. Right. I wouldn't want to be in her shoes. That's for sure. Absolutely not. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us once again. Your insights are always cherished and uh, always a pleasure to have you have you with us. So and, look and forward to doing much, it Jay. hopefully next week again. All right. Thanks. Well, folks, we're going to go to a break, but when we come back, we'll have Dan Oliver with us. No, no relative of Michael's as far as I know, but Dan will be here to talk about some of the topics of today's show. Um, On the Edge of Chaos is an article that he's written. We're going to ask you about that. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dan Oliver. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Goldmines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, uh, once again, Dan Oliver. We just spoke to Michael Oliver. No no relationship of, uh, of Dan, as far as I know, but uh, it's good to have both Olivers on uh, on the same day. We've done it once before as well. Anyway, thanks for joining me again, Dan. It's really good to have you with me. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I might tell our listeners it's uh, Mermican Capital. Uh, Dan, is there a place that people can go to pick up your... Your misses from time to time? Sure. If they go to murmurcon.com, you can sign up for my emails uh, right there on the webpage. And, and everything I write is, is also there freely available on the website. So anyone who's interested can go there and, and download at their leisure what, what I've said. Yeah, if people uh, want to know, want to have some insights that you're not going to pick up on the mainstream, you know, on the mainstream uh, media, you, Dan will certainly provide some, uh, some well thought out insights. Uh, and uh, Mermican, um, Mermican, Mermican, I guess is how Mermican, yeah. Mermican is M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N, but uh, M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N, just for the benefit of those out there uh, like me who can't spell very well or pronounce things very well. But anyway, 
Uh, Dan, thanks for joining me. You know, I, you, there was an article you wrote, uh, one of these that people can see on your website, I presume it's still there, on the edge of chaos that you wrote back in August of this year, August 17th to be exact, and you quoted um, a professor of economics at Harvard, uh, Gregory Mankiw, uh, as follows. He said, uh, and this was pertaining to, uh, this is dated back in uh, December of 2007, his, his remarks right before, of course, uh, before the financial crisis. Uh, the professor said, when you look at the mistakes of the 1920s and 1930s, they were clearly amateurish. It is hard to imagine that it is hard to imagine that happening again. We understand the business cycle better now than we did back then. So, December two thousand seven. You know, as I say, it was right before, shortly before the the biggest decline that we've had since the Great Depression. Clearly, the good uh, professor was off the mark. Uh, yeah. As we as what what goes on and what what do you think he would? Uh, how would he? answer that now. Maybe he has answered that now. Where did he go wrong? Why didn't he see it coming? And what do you think he's he might be thinking now? Well, Jay, let me start by saying that, that what we said earlier about going to places like Capital or indeed your show to get alternate viewpoints is, is the sad reality. And, and it's because the Fed Reserve has bought and paid for the entire uh, economist profession. All, all the university chairs are funded by them. All the all the articles you have to write, the journals are supported by them. I forget the exact budget, but it's an enormous sum that the Fed pays that filters down to the economists. So if you want to actually participate in the conversation at the official levels, you have to parrot the Fed's line on everything. And, and that's why uh, economists have such a monolithic viewpoint towards uh, towards the world, towards the economy, and why to get any alternate views at all, you have to go way off the mainstream to people who just simply aren't in that money money flow and very few people are willing to uh, to step willingly outside of that. And even people who criticize the system within it uh, do, do so from, uh, oh, don't worry, I'm a, I'm a Keynesian, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I just have these little, these little quibbles with the theory. I mean, there are very few people uh, inside the system, uh, Jim Grant being one, I suppose, because they have to take him seriously because he's been so successful. But but basically, anyone who criticizes it is, is pushed outside the system. But But Back, back to your question, back to your point. The, the reason these guys uh, didn't see the uh, uh, chaos coming in 2007, the reason they don't see it coming now, is because they simply don't understand how the economy works. You know, uh, Ludwig von Mises, as you know, back in the 20s, uh, uh, wrote down finally the, the Austrian business cycle theory. Now, that theory had been around for a long, long time before that, but he was the first guy to really make a comprehensive theory describe what happens. And basically what happens is, as, as you know very well, uh, the banking system, not just the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve encourages it, but the banking system does it all by itself. It lowers rates lower and lower and lower. And what it does is it encourages malinvestment, it encourages uh, investments in projects with very long-term cash flows like ships and buildings and cars and all those sorts of airplanes, all those sorts of things. And and it draws on capital that doesn't actually exist. The signal is a false one. And then what happens is you run out of resources and all those businesses fail. And that's been the economic cycle. You can trace back for thousands of years. And the reason I wrote that article that you, that you referred to is I've been working on a book for the past year and a half uh, detailing uh, credit cycles through the centuries, really the millennia. And it's amazing mm-hmm. to me how similar they all are and, and, and the actual words people use in these faraway lands, these faraway times uh, are very reminiscent to, to today. Uh, and, and, it, and it's always the same story, uh, which is overinvestment, malinvestment, falling prices because of our capacity, and, and then collapse. And, and the, the Keynesian consensus is you can manage this through 
uh, internet manipulation, but of course, of course you can't. And they haven't learned it. They they aren't going to learn it. And you know they're they're going to learn it again very soon because it looks to me like the Fed is going to raise rates this week uh, because they've put themselves in a box. They have to maintain credibility. And and the junk bond market is already collapsing. They haven't even raised it yet. Uh, and so what's going to happen when they raise rates? It's going to get worse. So so yes, I I see. The, the what's happening today is a precise parallel to what the Fed did in the 1920s, and that's what the paper's about, is, is tracing out in detail the fact the Fed did three rounds of quantitative easing in the 20s. No one knows that. Uh, it had the exact same effects that it had in the last few years, and it had this exact same real result, which is the Great Depression, which is where we're headed to. Well, the great uh, the propaganda, uh, all of those economists that the Fed pay for, and of course, they're the only ones that the mainstream media will listen to for the most part. You mentioned Jim Grant. I'd say David Stockman once in a while gets on there, but he's just labeled a crank, and nobody should really pay attention to the unhappy old, the, the unhappy old geezer. And uh, so, but the propaganda is out there, you know, Dan, and today the stock market, uh, everybody says it's almost a certainty we're going to see a rate rise uh, tomorrow will be announced by the Fed, the first one in seven years or so. Uh, and I guess that it seems as though the propaganda is working pretty good. Uh, people believe that this must be a sign that the Federal Reserve has it all figured out. That, my goodness, if the Fed is ready finally to raise rates, they must know for sure that the economy is pretty strong and things are getting better. What do you say to that? Well, well, let's distinguish between two things. And one is the equity markets and, and the real economy. And the equity markets can go up and down really on sentiment, right? I mean, th- think about it. If you yeah. if you own stocks, Jay, and everyone does, uh, and you want to buy more stocks, your broker is willing to lend you money on margin at, at very, very low rates at basically any, any level you want, right? So if you just wake up this morning and said, I want to buy stocks, you can do it. And the market would go up, and everyone thinks that way. The, the, the companies work very differently, right? Companies that actually operate and they make a profit and they have expenses. And one of the things that's happening in the market, and you can see this in charts published by the big banks themselves, and that is that the EBITDA, the earnings of, of corporate America, is rolling over. It's actually shrinking. At the exact same time, the interest burdens are rising, right? I mean, all these companies ran out. Ran out over the last few years, uh, did what the Fed told them to do, which is they borrowed lots of money at very low rates. And what's happening is that, yes, the, the interest rate on government debt hasn't changed because the Fed controls it on the short end, but interest rates on corporate debt has been slowly rising. And so when you have a huge amount of debt uh, uh, and, and the interest rate starts rising, that starts taking real cash to pay that thing. And if that happens at the same time that your EBITDA is rolling over, you can run into serious problems. And that that is not affected by sentiment, right? That's affected by balance sheets and accounts with green eye shades, right? When you're out of money, then you can't pay your, your obligations. And one thing that I would point out to people is that when you look at the carnage, especially in the junk bond market, right, when the bonds are, are, are tanking, it's simply not possible, uh, just in theory or in reality, the equity can have much value if the debt doesn't, right? And the way a corporate structure works, a capital structure works is the debt holders have to pay back at 100 cents the dollar before the equity guys get anything. And so mm-hmm. if you see the market taking the debt and, and, and selling it off by 50% or 80%, that tells you the market doesn't think the debt's getting paid back. If that happens, the equity's not getting anything. So, they are, so if that happens, the equity wants to be worth zero. So, uh, so uh, you know, watching the bond market is critically important for equity investors, even if they don't invest in it, because it tells them what they own is the residual cash flows, and it tells them the, that the market doesn't think the primary cash flows are going to be sufficient to pay the obligations. Well, the point you just made is painfully 
uh, clear to me, uh, Dan, uh, having been the owner of a company called Allied Nevada not long ago, a few shares of that, and, and certainly worked out that way, didn't it? I mean, the shareholders are left with nothing, and the debt guys are, are getting everything that the company had left. Uh, but uh, they're, they're, that's in the gold space. The gold miners, of course, I want to ask you about that, time permitting here a little later. But gold miners have been struggling like, like crazy. Uh, the the big market has been doing pretty well, but as you say, the EBITDA is coming down relative to uh, to the debt, and so the debt servicing is weaker. And uh, sooner or later, the piper has to be paid. The Fed, though, the Fed talks about what what are they looking at to suggest that we have a strong economy? They look at retail sales; are they doing well? What about consumer prices? Uh, you know, in, in industrial production, those are some of the things the Fed looks at. I heard one fellow this morning on on CNBC talking about. The Fed is so concerned uh, about the labor markets and, and and the very strong labor markets we have here now. That's the reason they're raising the rates, and uh, that, that's what they'll be watching is the labor markets. But anyway, could you comment on what does the Fed, do you think the Fed sees, or do they just selectively see what they want to see to justify whatever move they want to make next? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I really think what's happening you know, behind the headlines, and that is uh, let's go back to what the Fed thinks its mission is. Right, The, the central bank, the, the original mission of banks was to – basically broadcast a natural interest rate. As depositors deposited gold or withdrew gold from the bank, the bank had to adjust its rates to you know, preserve gold or, or, or reject it, depending on where the, the rate was. And sure. it was 1920s that, that Keynes and Irving Fisher said, no, 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 the, the purpose of a central bank is to stabilize consumer prices. And this is repeated by three central bankers at the Cato Institute meeting about a month ago, where they said, no, the, the primary purpose is to maintain uh, the stability of consumer prices. And the problem with that is that when the Fed started doing that in the 20s, uh, they maintained them at the wrong level. In other words, what had happened was in World War One, the U.S. built huge amounts of capacity to fight the war. So after the war, prices wanted to fall because there was all this capacity. People didn't need mm-hmm. all this stuff that we built. Uh, and so you get the panic of 1921, and the Fed in 1922, as early as that, starts buying uh, government bonds to support the markets, to return prices back to where they had been. But of course, that was the wrong level. And so what they did was they maintained the overcapacity, encouraged more of it. Uh, then, then they sold the bonds they bought. They kind of weakened. They bought more. They, they did this three times where they bought uh, a bonds, but government bonds in, in a QE program to maintain the economy. And then what happened was uh, consumer prices were stable because there was so much overcapacity that, uh, that all the money printing didn't affect consumer prices. But what happened was the money went into asset markets. And starting mm-hmm. in 1928, the Fed started getting very concerned about the fact the stock market and real estate and all those asset markets with, with which we're very familiar started going absolutely crazy. And they started raising rates not because uh, uh, consumer prices were going up, but because they wanted to get a handle on asset markets. And to me, again, we see the exact same thing where the Fed had rates too low for a, you know, a, lo- a very long time. And it encouraged huge amounts of overcapacity. Prices want to fall. They tried to fall in 2008 the same way they tried to fall in 1921. Uh, the Fed responds by printing huge amounts of money to return prices to where they quote-unquote should be. But <laughs> that's, the, that's the wrong price. That's the price necessary to maintain demand for all the stuff that nobody needs. And so prices continue to want to fall. And when you're seeing that now in dramatic form, of course, are commodities, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Every product whether it's your iPhone or your car, no matter what it is, it starts as a commodity, right? It starts as uh, a nickel or iron ore or, or whatever it is, and then it's sure. fashioned into a product. So so commodities are the things most distant from the consumers. They're most affected by, uh, by interest rates, by overcapacity, by these sorts of things. And so when you see commodity prices absolutely collapsing, what it tells you 
is that the demand for the end product is, is, is shrinking fast. And of course, we all know China, for example, has built so many billions, they don't need a new one for 20 years. And there's so many ships been built and, and all this, all this huge overcapacity infrastructure all around the world. And so that's why uh, that's being turned off and those commodities are tanking. And so according to the Fed's own playbook, when they look at industrial production, when they look at uh, shipping rates from China to Europe and, and, and back in, when they see all these, all these numbers that they say they follow and all these things are weakening, uh, they're either you know, not growing quickly at zero or even shrinking some of them. And so historically, the Fed should be uh, lowering rates right now. Right. The yeah. reason they they're say they're going to raise it is only strictly because uh, they've been claiming they're going to do so since 2008. When they started the program, they haven't been able to. And the question is, can they? And I think they want to show that they can, which is why I think they will raise the 25 basis points this week. Uh, but I don't think it'll make much difference. And no matter what they do, uh, they'll be forced to ease dramatically, uh, I think, in the near future, as this overcapacity creates a huge wave of deflation, which you see in the distant prices from the consumer now and will cascade uh, closer towards the consumer as, as we move forward. Well, Dan, do you think that uh, a tiny, tiny one-quarter percent interest rate rise, uh, you know, you have carry trade, you have highly leveraged uh, instruments, you do you think that uh, it could trigger something, a small rate rise could trigger some market uh, waterfalls? You know, I, I, I think, I don't know, and I'm not sure anyone does know. And the, yeah. and the reason is, on the one hand, you say to yourself, well, look, if, if, you're, if you've got some bond paying 6%, now it's paying 6.25%, so what? Yeah. You know, it, yeah. you know, maybe that matters in the long term, but not overnight. But, but the issue is, and there's been some discussion of this in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, but not not enough, I think, is that uh, the way, as you know, the Fed traditionally raises rates is they sell their short-term treasury bills, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't they don't own any short-term treasury bills, <laughs> and so they have to invent these new uh, 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 things, these new products, these these new. Uh, protocols that that are brand new that they've tested a few times or with with the banks on board and so that the tests work on a, a very small level but the, you know there is some suggestion that uh, when they go to raise rates they won't be able to they won't actually work and uh, or or that to raise rates 25 basis points they'll actually have to suck out you know, I don't know, eight hundred billion or some number like that. Because yeah. that, that was the that was the extent to which uh, you know QE two lowered rates by twenty five basis points. So if they if that's the analogy, then it requires a huge uh, uh, withdrawal of liquidity. So I don't think anyone knows. I'm not sure they know, mm-hmm. and I think that's why they're so nervous. And then on top of that, you know, don't forget you have about uh, and no one knows the exact number, but there's around seven hundred trillion dollars of interest rate derivative swaps out there. And, and, and the, you know, in theory, they all balance, so it's not a big deal because the net exposure for everyone is very small. But the growth, of course, is absolutely enormous. And so if there are any imbalances in that derivatives tower uh, and, and 25 basis points is enough to upset or, or take one counterparty down that cascades through the system, which, which can happen, uh, th- then I think, you know, fire, we should really fly quickly. I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. I, I think, you know, again, in my view, the real economy is – collapsing and it's collapsing because of the over overcapacity the fed has engendered and, and that's a story that's a slow moving story uh but inexorable and it will continue until the fed reacts and prints up another you know who knows how much five trillion dollars uh but then you have the short-term issue which is you know are they going to light a fuse on the on the derivative pyramid uh tomorrow uh and, and blow it up i i yeah. just don't know i'm not sure anyone does know i know it's, it's impossible to know, probably, I suppose. But, but in any event, uh, so we have this, definitely we have this 
uh, price deflation, in spite of the fact that there's been trillions of dollars pumped into the reserves of banks and so forth. But amazing, isn't it? Uh, it's amazing, and uh, you know, I mean, I have something I call my inflation deflation watch, which is a mixture of broad-based equities and also key commodities like oil and copper and the Rogers Raw Materials Fund and silver's in there as well. And those things are down between 52 and 72 percent since the peak in 2011. That bubble has clearly collapsed, the commodity bubble. But Dan, there has to be a bubble. I think you would agree in in the debt markets and in the equity market. So let's say that there is some major trigger that, that causes those to waterfall downward. What ha- Do we go into a 1930s style situation again? And then uh, would they uh, possibly give us real helicopter money at some point in time when they actually, you know, I had Ron Paul on the show years ago and he said, well, he was he's a real inflationist, has been in the past. He said, well, no doubt in his mind, they'll just find a way to send money to people, you know, just just credit their accounts or do whatever they need. Do you see that happening and then possibly triggering into another, you know, the opposite problem of a hyperinflation? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I was in Europe two weeks ago talking to some investors over there, and they said something very interesting, which they said, in, in, in Germany, the hyperinflation, the Weimar hyperinflation is just beyond living memory. I mean, it, it was within living memory until about 10 years ago. And sure. they, still, they still walk around with that fear. It's the biggest fear of the Germans is hyperinflation. And it's why when you look at their QE programs, for example, forget about the number, right? What, what are they buying? And up till now, they've been buying you know, short-term asset-backed paper, right? So it, mm-hmm. it, really, it really wasn't very effective. It really wasn't very scary. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in Americans, we walk around, and within living memory for us is the Great Depression, the, the right. banking failure. And so we don't want to ever have that happen to us again. And so, and so this fellow thought, and, and, and I don't disagree, that, that Europe is going to head towards bank collapse because they'd prefer that over hyperinflation. And, and we, not having experienced hyperinflation, have having experienced bank collapse, are going to veer towards the opposite. I thought it was a very interesting comment. And, and it's a way of answering your question. Yes, I mean, again, the conditions that created 29 uh, are, are present day only more so. And so you're going to get the same result where you get a huge deflationary shock uh, because of the overcapacity. Prices are going to fall. And then they can pay their debts back. And then the bank system start teetering. And you're already seeing that on the fringes. Right? I mean, the oil and gas space has about $2.5 trillion of debt in it. And that was a year and a half ago. So whatever that debt's worth now is not worth $2.5 trillion anymore, right? It's worth a lot less because the, sure. the cash level to maintain it is, is less. So who lent them money and who lent them money? Uh, and and h- how, do you, how do you unwind that, that those relationships? I, I don't know. You know, I was interested a little off topic, but I think it's very revealing. Um, the terrorists in San Bernardino apparently got funded by going to this website called Prosper.com. I don't know if you've been to this <laughs> website. You, yeah. you, you go there and you can borrow between uh, three and $35,000 in this drop-down list. Why do you need it? Right, and it's vacation, uh, special occasion, other. I, I don't know what, which one they they push other. I, I don't know what they did. But what was interesting, what what caught my attention was that they they got this money from Prosper, and then Prosper bundled it and sold it to Citicorp. Oh, so City Citicorp was the ultimate funder of these guys, right? Of course, that's I'm interesting. Only, but the point is, I I mean, I, I saw this website six months ago and wrote it up as, as sort of an absurdity and an example of how crazy credit had got. And I just assumed it was a bunch of cowboys lending money. I had no idea a money center bank was funding uh, people giving vacation loans to people with absolutely no credit whatsoever. Uh, I mean, and vacation, can you imagine you're taking out $20,000 on vacation? I mean, where are these guys oh, yeah. going? Uh, but uh, anyway, so, so it, it just shows you how, how insane, how insanely the, the credit system set up, how, how involved, the, how vulnerable these banks are 
to the story. And and but again, to go back to your question, in the '30s, when the market collapsed, uh, the Fed remember it, it's mandate it, it's mandate that it had adhered to itself because the great minds of Irving Fisher and, and, and Keynes said they should was to stabilize prices. And the and the issue, the conflict in the late '20s was that commodity prices were falling and stock prices were rising. So they didn't know what to do because of this divergence, what do we do? And they decided to tackle asset prices. Once both prices were falling, once the market started collapsing along with commodity prices, then, then it was clear what their mission was, and that was to stabilize prices. So they started buying bonds again. They started trying to print money. And the problem was that the gold standard meant that if you didn't like what they were doing as a consumer, you could go down to the Fed with your $20 and demand your gold back. And that's what started happening. And so the Fed had no choice but to raise rates because they simply had to maintain their gold reserves by, le- by legislation. They had to. And so they, they were put in a box by the gold standard. And that's precisely what all the monetarists and all the Keynesians wanted to get a- away from. And that's why FDR made uh, uh, ownership of gold a felony so the banks wouldn't have to do that again and so when it happens again when the market starts collapsing again and you see commodity prices already collapsing and consumers prices are coming down then the Fed will have no uh, Hamlet moment right they'll, they'll know what their mission is and that is to get prices higher again and this time there's no gold center to stop them so they'll be able to print money as much as they want to and don't forget that Bernanke it wasn't just the one or two or three trillion dollars they had printed in the crisis, he guaranteed about sixteen trillion dollars in two thousand and eight, and that's what stabilized the banking system. And so my projection is that when we get the big market collapse, which is coming, I think quite swiftly, especially they raise rates, it'll accelerate it, uh, that you're what you see is the Fed not only having to print money but having to guarantee huge amounts of this debt. and and there is historical precedence for this. You know Bernanke was lucky because the guarantees were never drawn upon, and so they they expired and went away. But of course, you know, just because that happened once doesn't mean it happens again. I mean, it's certainly mm-hmm. possible that the Yellen runs out to stabilize the system. She guarantees, who knows, twenty, thirty trillion dollars of debt. And what happens if the banks are calling on them? They say, "Oh, actually, yeah, we, yeah, we'd like hand over the thirty trillion, please." Right? Well, then you're immediately in hyperinflation. And I, I suspect that I don't know that we wind up with uh, with hyperinflation in the sense that I, I suspect the authorities choose capital controls instead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just shut the banks down that they did in Cyprus, and then you can't get your money, and then you don't get hyperinflation because there's there's no money because they they've essentially uh, you know gotten rid of it all. But uh, but I, but I think that that's sort of my model of what happens next. Yeah, bail-ins uh, possibly, um, and, and just start taking you know and and uh, getting away from currency, getting away from cash is another option they've been talking about. Do you think oh, that sure. could happen? Well, you know, well just, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Again, the, the it was the withdrawal of gold in the early 30s, late 20s that prevented the Fed from doing what they wanted to do, which was print money, right? And now, uh, when you withdraw cash from a bank, it has the same effect, right? They have to unwind 10, 20 times the loans, depending on how, how levered up they are, uh, your withdrawal. So if they say, hey, you can't take your cash out, and then the theory is that the bank doesn't need to unwind because they don't need to pay you cash. So it's, it's, it's the same thing, essentially, elevated to, to the next level, Um yeah, yeah that, I think that will happen. Yes, they'll let you spend your money, uh, use your credit cards, and and tap your account with your right. with your debit card or whatever. But don't take it out of the out of the system. I guess is what. That's right. It, it'll yeah. be so. This this is a terrorism message or some, something like that. I mean, all, yeah. A lot of these banking reforms are done in the name of terrorism, which is not to do terrorism at all. It's just right. capital controls. But they use well, it, it might it it might be terror for the bankers. That uh, it might be <laughs> terrorism as <laughs> far as the bankers are concerned. <sighs> well, uh, Dan, we have just about two and a half minutes or so left. I have to ask you. Uh, where does gold sit in here now in, in 
light of all that you've talked about. Uh, yeah. Does it make any sense? You and I own gold shares. We've got nothing but sadness and, and discomfort from doing so. True. What, what should we do now? Yeah, I mean, like gold is uh, the ultimate asset. It's the ultimate collateral. And so uh, historically, when you get a big margin call, like in 2008, people dump their gold because they have to raise money so they don't lose their assets. And so so from that perspective, uh, you know, gold could see a big leg down when this stuff happens because that's what's happening. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to happen. Uh, unlike in 2007 and 2008, the hedge fund community, the speculators are short gold. So it may be when the margin calls go out, all those hedge fund guys have to start buying gold to unwind their books. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, that, that's very difficult to see as well. But there's no question in the longer term, uh, either what happens is the banking system collapses and you can't get your money. So gold doesn't go to 10000 stays where it is, but at least you got the gold, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, think of poor Cypriots. I mean, they didn't make money on the gold in terms of nominal prices, but at least they had their money outside the banking system. So that's one option. Sure. And the other option is that you know they do print the money and, and, and prices do go crazy and gold does go to ten thousand. But either way, in, in when you're looking at a credit collapse, uh, and, and again, Jay, you can you can read about these things going back for four thousand years. I mean, this is nothing new. And uh, and gold is the only thing that is sure to survive uh, a credit collapse. All right. Well, I'm going to look forward to your book coming out. When do you think you'll have it? <laughs> well, I hope to have finished the manuscript in the next uh, three, four well, months. Well, it should that. it should be very interesting in light of what you're talking about going back over these credit cycles, so we can see very clearly. It's uh, amazing it, similarity, Jay. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Uh, we're out of time, unfortunately, Dan. It always goes so fast with you. Thanks for being with me once again and look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thanks for folks, having me. Folks, that's all the time uh, we have today. Uh, thanks for being with us. Next week, uh, David McElvaney will be my, my main guest. I expect Michael Oliver may be with me as well. So thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Weider, my engineer, to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 